Hey, this is Dan Messick, and you're listening to Upstream, a Skeena Wild podcast. Upstream will explore the people, culture, science, and of course the salmon from all across the Skeena watershed. Northwest BC is filled with diverse voices, communities, and economies that rely on a healthy watershed. So we'll dive into the work being done every day on the ground to ensure our way of life and salmon have a future and that the Skeena stays wild. This is episode six, a future for wild salmon. Uh, 20 years plus in of our work trying to, you know, protect and rebuild Kitwanga Sockeye. It's a struggle. Uh, we've seen some really good returns in some years. Like in 2010, we had over 20,000 sockeye come back. And then, you know, compared to 2021, we're almost three quarters through the run and we're at 150 fish. Like it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's very controlled by what's happening in the ocean. Um, you know, that, that's one of the key factors. Um, and obviously linked to climate change and, and other, other factors. We're seeing it all over uh, the, the west coast here with salmon. Uh, but there's things we can do. Uh, you know, we have a, a rebuilding program right now where uh, we're tracking Kitwanga Sockeye. We're putting radio tags and even pit tags and we're uh, tracking them through the watershed. Uh, a few years ago we started doing that and sure enough, we had two really low water years, 2017, 2018. And, uh, the, the, the rivers were so warm and low that the fish were being stalled out between uh, our adult fence and uh, the lake where they need to get into for refuge before they spawn and then they move on to the spawning areas after uh, ripening up in the lake. Uh, so through those studies and drone surveys and other things, we were actually finding that beavers were damming the entire upper river. So our fish were stuck behind beaver dams because the water and the river was so low. In my, I've been working for Gitniao since 1999. I've walked the Kitwanga River every single year. I've never ever seen anything like that. And uh, you know, it, it's a clear indication that things are changing and these fish need help. Right across the Skeena watershed, we've heard how salmon are in crisis. As we discussed with several scientists, indigenous leaders and conservationists in the first season of Upstream, concern for the future of wild salmon is on everyone's mind. But despite major depletions of Skeena salmon across all species over the last century, for now, the Skeena remains a productive system overall. The remoteness of many of its tributaries and the absence of dams has kept the relative pristine ecosystems of the Skeena and Nass watersheds positioned well for salmon to have a fighting chance in the decades and centuries ahead. Although the situation even 10 years ago was much different than it is today, there is still hope in protecting the watershed to remain a refuge for salmon as we continue to battle the effects of climate change, overlogging, and harmful fishing methods. Things are changing within our collective environments and we all need to play a part to ensure salmon have a future here in the Skeena and Nass watersheds. As some systems become less productive due to climate change and impacts to habitat, there is mounting evidence to suggest that some systems within the Skeena and Nass watersheds could become more productive, offering safe haven for many populations of wild salmon and steelhead. The Gitniao, whose territory encompasses large sections of the Nass and Kitwanga rivers, as well as a significant portion of the upper Kispiox River, a tributary of the Skeena, have been working for more than two decades to ensure the survival of their precious sockeye. 
The fisheries programs they run are critical to understanding how salmon might adapt to a rapidly changing climate and how we can provide the best possible habitat for salmon to flourish in the future. My name is Mark Cleveland. I'm a fisheries biologist and I've worked for the Gitniaw for over 20 years. Uh, I oversee and help them run their technical programs. Uh, I've done that for quite a number of years. Uh, right now we're standing on the Kitwonga River and what we're looking at is uh, a large adult salmon counting facility. Uh, we're approximately four kilometers from the mouth of uh, the river here where it meets the Skeena. Uh, most of the salmon spawn above this location. There is about 10% of the pink salmon that spawn below our fence in the lower four kilometers and uh, approximately 3% of the Chinook. Uh, and uh, all the other salmon spawn above. So. The Kitwonga is significant because it's uh, a middle Skeena salmon indicator. That's what we're using this operation for. If you built this today, I bet you, yeah, it'd be three million bucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, it, and it costs uh, just over 150 grand a year to run. Okay. okay. And we've made a, a lot of improvements and changes over the years. We're doing most of the counting now with high def underwater cameras. Wild. Yeah, my, my staff sit in this building now and count fish. Oh, wow. Interesting. You'll see there's, there's somebody here right now, but uh, often we, we have to trap fish so that we can, we, we try to sample between 3 and 5% of them. Okay. Because uh, we need to get ages and some of the biological information that you can't get from the camera box. Yeah. So this is the camera box here, that white box? Yeah, that's right. All right. So you can see, uh, you know, we block the entire river. Yeah. And we force fish to both sides. Yeah. Hey, Katrina, how you doing? She probably can't hear me. Uh, and then we force them through sample boxes. We'll go over there afterwards. Okay. Uh, oh, but yeah. then a lot of the fish actually like the camera box better, so they'll go through the camera box. Oh, wow. You can see some pinks here. The Kitwonga is a fairly small tributary when you compare it to other uh, tributaries in the Skeena, but it's really significant and important because it's biologically rich, and it, has, it supports all five species of salmon and steelhead. So every year we set up uh, since 2003, so it's, it's a quite a long data set. Uh, since 2003, we set this operation up uh, beginning of July, and then it'll, it'll count salmon right into the end of October. And it corresponds with the, the various run timings. So we see our sockeye, our chinook first, then the pinks, then the chum, and then the coho. Yeah. Uh, this is just one, but I mean, like, do you use what's coming out of the tie to kind of try to help, you know, figure out how many salmon are coming up? Like, is there any correlation with that data? Or, or is this just specifically for the Gitniaw's information? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's for the Gitniaw's information. It's kind of standalone, except that we feed information into DFO's overall management system. So we provide them weekly in-season salmon updates um, and it helps them, you know, gauge whether we should open or close fisheries. Uh, we often have closures at the mouth of the Kitwonga to protect sockeye in particular, uh, or, you know, if you get a really low run of Chinook, then, you know, they take that into consideration as well. So, um, yeah, and because we've got this long data set, um, we're able to really provide valuable information. Um, you know, this is a very expensive operation. You can't do it on every system, obviously. Uh, so uh, we use it to gauge the health of not only the Kitwonga River, but other rivers in the, in the Skeena system. We also run a smolt program in the upper part of the watershed where we count, uh, specifically it was set up to uh, enumerate and uh, gauge the health and the size of the sockeye uh, smolt run every year. So we, we run that operation from the beginning of April right until the end of June. 
Also with that one, uh, a good portion of our coho that come back to the Kitwanga spawn above the smolt fence. So every year we, we get a large number of smolts uh, immigrate through Gitniao Lake uh, and then through the smolt fence and uh, we count those, uh, but we also code wire tag those. So we have a code wire tag program on the coho where we're putting, you know, I'm not sure if you're familiar with code wire tags, but they're a, a really small metal tag that gets put in the cartilage of the of the coho's nose, and then we clip the adipose fin, which makes it recognizable, and and those fish get tracked all over, uh, you know, in the U.S. fisheries and in Canadian fisheries. So we know where Kitwanga coho are caught every year, and then over the long term, we build these data sets. And you know it's it's transferable to other coal stocks in the Skeena watershed as well. Yeah, um, that's a really good point. You know um, that these fish, you know, they go quite a ways. They go into the ocean, uh, obviously into and get picked up by U.S. fisheries. Um, what is the situation currently with the salmon that you've been seeing coming back this year? Um, steelhead, it looks like in the grand scheme of things, this is the worst run that we've seen in history. How are the other? populations that you've seen this year in terms of the data i mean we're kind of in september here towards the end of the season how's it how's it looking yeah maybe i'll start by talking about steelhead so uh on top of our our summer fall counting operations we also work with the province we have since uh well, probably going on eight years now uh where we set up a didson which is i'm not sure if you're familiar with didson but it's a high-tech sonar that we shoot across the river uh, during the spring and it actually measures uh, the upstream and downstream migration of adult steelhead mm -hmm. and the reason why it works uh, and it's basically just a sonar that shot across the river and it gives you a size measurement on the fish moving through and because steelhead are the only big fish moving through at that time you know that they're steelhead right so we get an accurate count every year of all the steelhead coming in to spawn and then the kelts leaving um, and uh, so we're building that database over time. Uh, you asked specifically, you know, I understand the, based on the Tai data, we're, we're on one of the worst steelhead runs, you know, ever recorded in 65 years, uh, I believe. Um, so we did run a Didson program, I believe, this year. Uh, we, we don't get the data until the postseason because it's analyzed uh, through, uh, yeah, so. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have that data from this year yet to see what our run was. But uh, and then this coming year actually will be next spring, so we'll get the data from because uh, they're, they're spring spawners, right? Yeah. So they're coming in the summer. Uh, from the studies we've done, most of our Kitwanga steelhead overwinter in the Skeena mm -hmm. main stem, and then they move in, uh, and that's when we see them through our fence. Yeah. yeah. So uh, one of the one other. Uh, you talked about some of the other programs we have. One of the, the big catalysts for this adult fence was um, whenever I first came and worked for Gitniao, one of the first things the chiefs did is they sat me down as a young biologist and said, uh, we're really concerned. Uh, our sockeye are almost gone. Historically, we used to harvest thousands of sockeye on the Kitwanga River. It was one of our main food staples. Uh, uh, you know, in the 60s and 70s, the upper watershed was heavily logged. Uh, also, you know, it corresponded with some fairly high fishing pre pressures on Skeena Sockeye after they created the Babine enhancement channels. So they, they tasked me to put together basically a program to find out, you know, where are our sockeye? They had stopped fishing them in the 60s and 70s because they couldn't catch them and they were concerned that they were going to go extinct. 
So one of the first things we did is uh, we got funding back in uh, 2000, 2000, 2001, and 2002 to run a temporary weir. So fairly rudimentary, you know, our, me and the staff, we, uh, we, we set up a two by four rebar fence in the upper watershed right below the lake. We carried 6,000 pounds of rebar, almost a kilometer through the bush. And, and then we ran this temporary re rear for uh, three seasons. And sure enough, we confirmed what the elders were talking about. There were literally a handful of fish left, like less than a thousand each year and as low as 240 in one year. This is a stock that historically used to produce sake in the tens of thousands. It's genetically unique. It's what we call a conservation unit under the wild salmon policy. So when it goes extinct, it's gone. It's gone forever. You can't just, uh, you know, transplant sockeye from somewhere else. And a prime example of that is whenever, uh, so in two different years, in 2006, 2007, uh, we had a small-scale enhancement program where we collected brood stock and raised them uh, in partnership with the Gitsan at their hatchery. Uh, so one of the things we found out at that time uh, was when we compared the size of a Kitwanga sockeye egg to other Skeena, Skeena sockeye eggs, like wild, wild eggs, wild eggs, they were a third smaller. Another thing we found out is that Kitwanga sockeye are exclusively lakeshore spawners, so they spawn on the lakeshore. And the theory is there's a lot less oxygen because it's not flowing. So, you know, the Kitwanga sockeye, they've adapted over likely thousands and thousands of years to have smaller eggs so that they can survive on these lakeshores. Mm. So just going back to my story, you can't just take a babine sockeye, throw it in Gitanyana Lake or the Kitwanga River and expect it to survive yeah. because it doesn't have those long-term adaptations, right? Yeah. Um, one, of, one of the things that, you know, has come out in the, in the last couple of years with some of the work that Mike Price has been doing is looking at, you know, the genetic diversity of these particular populations, you know, 30 different populations within the Skeena watershed. Um, and it may seem like a complex or, you know, something that's not really important, but it, it's hugely important, as you mentioned, the adaptation for these fish to actually adapt to current situations. So, you know, doing this program now for almost 20 years, um, you know, kind of what's your hope? Where are we at now in terms of is it possible to make sure that this population survives, especially given that, you know, we were just at this this launch of an indigenous protected area that in the hopes of making sure that the habitat at least is there for these fish to, you know, do well and, and you know, be sustainable. Uh, uh, you know, we have a, a rebuilding program right now where uh, we're tracking Kitwanga sockeye, we're putting radio tags and even pit tags and we're uh, tracking them through the watershed uh, a few years ago we started doing that and sure enough we had two really low water years 2017-2018 and uh, the, the the rivers were so warm and low that the fish were being stalled out between uh, our adult fence and uh, the lake where they need to get into for refuge before they spawn and then they move on to the spawning areas after uh, ripening up in the lake. Uh, so through those studies and drone surveys and other things, we were actually finding that beavers were damming the entire upper river. So our fish were stuck behind beaver dams because the water and the river was so low. In my, I, I've been working for Gitanyao since 1999. I've walked the Kitwanga River every single year. I've never ever seen anything like that. Mm. And uh, you know, it, it's a clear indication that things are changing and these fish need help. Yeah. So hopefully things change around you know, change around and, and we can uh, help these populations to persist. But in the meantime, 
it's crucial that we have these programs to, you know, do simple things like, uh, yeah, there's a beaver dam a kilometer below the lake. We got to send a crew in to breach it or, or so on, right? Yeah. Otherwise, we've seen it. These fish get stuck behind, behind these dams. And uh, unfortunately, that year, other salmon stocks weren't doing that well either. So many of the sockeye were being, you know, predated on by grizzlies and uh, eagles. We were finding our radio tags 200 meters in the bush. So, I mean, like, it's, it's clear that, you know, these fish aren't coming back in the volumes that they used to. The sizes are much smaller, right? So these record-breaking fish that we've seen years gone uh, are, are over, more or less. Um, and so now, I guess, you know, what's kind of the, the hope or what's kind of the, the, the main, um, you know, driving force behind this? What are you trying to achieve? What's the objective here long-term? Granted, all of these issues like climate change, you know, seeing some droughts up the river, you know, what's the objective at the end of the day? Well, let's preserve what we have right now. And, uh, you know, there's some things that are very hard to control and, you know, we're not going to change that overnight. Like, you know, the impacts of climate change on the oceans and then productivity for salmon. But there are some low-lying fruit. Uh, for example, the beaver dam example. Like, uh, it's a no-brainer if you have guardians on the ground, for example, and, and, and people that can go out and do something simple like beach, breach dams at key times when those salmon are, are moving through. And making sure they can make it to the spawning areas, uh, you know, that goes a long ways. If you like what you're hearing and want to hear more about the Skeno watershed, salmon, science, and how communities are working together to ensure a future for all the creatures that call the Skeno home, then download the Upstream podcast. Check us out at skenowild.org or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the show. One of the ways the Gitniao are taking conservation matters into their own hands is through land use planning and the establishment of an expanded protected area. In September, the Gitniao announced a new IPA, an indigenous protected area for the territory surrounding Mesiadan Lake, a potential high value refuge for NAS salmon. The Gitniao have been negotiating with the provincial government for years on various issues. Chief among them was the landmark Gitniao Hulip Recognition and Reconciliation Agreement that laid the groundwork for land use planning and the eventual creation of the Mesiaden Indigenous Protected Area. In 2013, the Gitniao and the provincial government agreed to create what is known as the Hanatantina Conservancy, a 24,000 hectare protected area adjacent to Mesiaden Lake, ensuring a basic level of protection for Nass River sockeye within the conservancy. However, over the last number of years, since Kitwanga and Nass sockeye populations have been in decline, more territory outside of the Hanatantina Conservancy needs protection as well. When negotiations with the province to protect another 30,000 hectares of critical salmon habitat stalled out, the Gitniao went ahead and created the Mesiaden Indigenous Protected Area anyway, under their own laws. Tar Marsden is a Gitniao Huilp member and the Huilp Sustainability Director for the Gitniao Hereditary Chief's Office. She says there's no time for the Gitniao to wait if they want any hope of ensuring salmon will remain on the landscape for generations into the future. She also speaks about a time when governments and the Department of Fisheries and Oceans had a much more paternal approach to fisheries management on indigenous territory, a relationship that has drastically changed over the past 20 years. I'm a My name is Tara Marsden and my Gitsan name is Nakink. 
I live in Hazleton. I'm from Wilkamahilt in the Ganeta clan of uh, Gitniel, the Gitniel who woke. I've grown up the majority of my life in the Skeena region, in the Skeena and Manass regions, Northwest BC. Uh, born in Hazleton, lived on the uh, back road outside of Kiwonga for uh, the first seven years of my life. And then Hazleton and Prince Rupert for high school. And just have a really grounded sense of the place that we all share and love so much and, and really appreciate the bounty that we have here in terms of salmon and in terms of fresh water and mountains and the culture that I've been raised in, the Gitsan culture. Tara, one thing we like to touch upon with everyone that we speak to on Upstream is about your initial experiences and interactions with salmon. So for you growing up within the Skeena watershed, what do you remember as your first interaction or experience with Skeena salmon? Um, you know, it was, it's been a staple of our diet, um, since I was born. And so learning from, uh, my jeets, from my grandmother, uh, Kathleen Marsden, um, the preparation of salmon in the smokehouse and, and jarring and preserving salmon for the winter and the importance of it in terms of our governance and our feast hall and the reliance that we have on it really and and what what that means in terms of our land and the health of our land so yeah i, I was born in hazelton uh, my parents were living in Gitniel at the time and um, beyond that i think some of the earlier memories were also uh, going out to wilson creek in uh, Gitwangak territory and seeing, you know, families gathered every year and, and the encroachment of DFO and the marshmallow wars that happened uh, with, with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans and enforcement of um, fisheries, colonial fisheries laws on our people and what that did to um, really embolden our chiefs going forward into the Delgamo court case. And um, my mother and my grandfather were expert witnesses in the Delgamo court case. And so learning our laws, our IOC and our ADAOC, which is our oral histories, is really um, formed, I guess, the way I see things and, and the way that I see the stewardship of salmon. Um, and then, yeah, just having two children now, uh, my kids are 11 and 7. And the the joy that I have in seeing they can still access wild salmon, um, that we can still teach them our culture through salmon is really, really important to me. And wanting them to have that for their children as well is, is uh, a lot of the reason why I do the work that I do. Yeah, no doubt. Tara, we were up at the in Gitniao territory to see the announcement and witness um, the the creation of the Meziad and Indigenous Protected Area. Um, obviously, that is all in an effort to make sure that there are salmon populations, healthy salmon populations that continue to come back to those areas and, and to feed the people on the land. But there's always been, as you mentioned, some encroachment of, of government or DFO. And I've heard a little bit about the marshmallow wars, but maybe you can give us a little bit of a brief because that seemed to set in motion a lot of what has transpired in terms of Indigenous rights and title over the last 
20 plus years since Delgamook. So maybe maybe give me a little bit of a brief about the Marshmallow Wars and what kind of transpired at that time. Yeah, so this was um, the the Gitwangak, uh, which is a neighbor of, of Gitniao. And uh, there was uh, an enforcement action taken against people fishing uh, on Skeena. And this was um, probably around the same time or prior to the Sparrow decision. And so there were some key cases coming out just prior to Delgamook um, really advancing through the courts that actually established our right to fish. And so prior to that, Department of Fisheries and Oceans had a lot more presence on the land. They had enforcement people out all the time doing road checks, going out to fishing sites. And it was really a harassment exercise of Indigenous people exercising their now recognized right to fish. And so the story of the Marshmallow Wars was that, you know, these were unarmed families at their fishing sites. And here we have armed, you know, Department of Fisheries uh, and Oceans officers coming in. And so their way of defending themselves, they had marshmallows in the camp, was to throw marshmallows at the, the DFO officers. And so there's uh, there's videos available online about that that can tell that history uh, better than, than I. But I was, you know, a child at the time. And so growing up in that environment uh, where we were still being persecuted for uh, living on the land, still being, um, you know, criminalized. And, and now to a point where we have established legal rights, the Gitsan and the Wet'suwet'en have been central in establishing universal rights, essentially in Canada through the Delgamook court case, you know, saying no, title has not been extinguished. Uh, these ways of being in terms of uh, hereditary governance have not been extinguished just because the Crown came along. Um, so that's, you know, that's how we were raised. That's the, the life that we've lived and, and trying to continue our hereditary governance in protecting salmon for future generations. That's the whole point behind the Mesiad and Indigenous protected area is not just being consulted by the Crown, not waiting for the Crown to take action when we have a climate crisis and we need to protect what habitat is left um, and restoring the damage from past habitat. So that's really what it's about. It's about taking all that we've learned growing up and applying it in new ways and, and sharing our learnings with other nations that have Indigenous protected areas. So there are going to be more of them that you're going to hear about. And it's going to become more uh, difficult for, for the Crown governments to ignore them, I think. Um, one, one thing that really kind of struck me uh, being up there was that we, we, we see where the fish camp is, but then just upriver slightly, there's the DFO camp. And, you know, has there, has there ever been any... I mean, I know there has, but maybe you can kind of give us some insight. You know, what has that relationship been like over these years? You kind of mentioned a little bit of it already. Um, but now, nowadays, and now with this new protected area, how do you see things playing out, especially given that, you know, there's quite a number of, of sockeye that have come through there. And it, it's looking like for a moment that we actually are seeing a, a decent-sized return um, to the Mesiadin system, and and I know there are you know some major climate issues, um, especially with melting glaciers and whatnot. But there's always this this question of you know where will salmon go? How will they adapt? They're resilient creatures, so how will they adapt to this new reality? So now that this indigenous protected area is created and it's and it's in place, how do you see that relationship with both those camps? 
the DFO and the Gitniao, you know, just meters apart going forward? How do you see that relationship shaping up going forward now? Sure. Yeah, it's, it's a great uh, question. And so the, the fishway just above Lock and Dock uh, is like it's tripartite, essentially. So it's the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, it's Gitniao Fisheries Authority, and then it's Miskalism Government with their consultants, uh, LGL. And so there's those three parties are there working um, throughout the duration of the season. And so we'll usually have our guy that's working there. And then there's the report out on the data that happens daily. So we get the daily counts coming through the fishway and that goes to, again, all three parties. So there's been a lot of improvement. You know, we have come a long way since those days where we were basically being criminalized for fishing. We're now active stewards um, in the data collection and, and the management. Uh, there's much more ongoing consultation with the, with the federal uh, department, but it's still that asserted and assumed crown authority that we're, that we're dealing with. And when we have uh, the recognition of Indigenous laws through the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, so that's been adopted formally both by the provincial and federal governments now. And so when we come forward and say, these are our laws, and when you are coming to us with uh, either management plans or um, proposed development activities, you need to respond in accordance with how this proposed action is going to comply with our Indigenous law, which is a protected area and its management plan now. So it's taking a more proactive stance and not being constantly reactive to Crown engagement and Crown proposed activities and consultation. So it's a big shift that I would say is, is a long time coming and um, it is uh, blazed by the trails of you know our our ancestors who got us into the Supreme Court of Canada and who you know were arrested for fishing or who were harassed for fishing and now we have that right now we can freely fish as you saw at Meziad and without that harassment and we can play a more active role in stewardship in terms of the size of the run this year, you're absolutely right. It's amazing. Uh, I think the the buyback of the licenses on the coast had a fairly immediate effect from what we can see. So the run size this year through Meziad, and you know, the last count was I think, I think around 236,000. So a bad year is you know around 100, 125,000 through Meziad and Fishway. A great year back in the good days was you know 500,000. So we're, we're getting better. It's, it's definitely promising. But what I find is that so many people think, well, let's just wait until it's, you know, endangered before we do anything about it. And that's just a very um, backwards way of thinking. I, I just don't understand why you would wait until it's a crisis point to protect something that's so valuable. And for the NAS, it is really the last unenhanced stock, you know, in, in, in BC, as far as I can see it, like there are other smaller ones, but for the significance of the size and, you know, the Skeena, people always think it's wild salmon, but you go up to the, the Pinget and Fulton and, and the spawning beds they have there and they're in, it's enhanced, it's, it's managed, right? And in the NAS, you can go out and you can still see totally pristine, unmanaged spawning beds. And it's just, it's beautiful because it's, it's the way that nature has intended it to be. 
Yeah. Yeah, I know there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, that issue of, of you know, hatchery versus enhanced, um, obviously, yeah. versus wild yeah. and, and, and what that actually looks like. And, you know, I know Mike Price, uh, who works with Skeena Wild, a biologist with Skeena Wild, also the science director, and he's been doing a lot of great work looking at, you know, where will other habitats open up to ensure that that wild populations and, and the genetics within those wild populations um, are, are sustained and are diverse enough to sustain, you know, the, the whole of the populations within within the Skeena watershed and, and of course, the NAS and, you know, to some degree, even the, the Stikine. And so it's 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 curious to to see that, but also the importance of having these protected areas in places where, like you say, uh, you know, this could be the last of, you know, these these salmon populations that we're witnessing now. And it's and it's how do we kind of ensure their protection, but also it, it, and broaden that protection. And one of the things that I, I wanted to touch base on is the fact that this indigenous protected area, it, it's it's not the first of its kind. But there are others, like you said, that are coming, and I and I wanted to know mm-hmm. how do you envision the model of the Mesiata Indigenous Protected Area, and where else could it be exported elsewhere in the watershed and beyond? Sure, uh, yeah. Just uh, I wanted to comment on your first um, uh, question or comment there about the diversity, the genetic diversity. So we're doing um, uh, or completing, just wrapping up a genetic study for the Mesiata. And going back to, you know, a few years in, in genetic samples that are currently available. And again, this is, you know, in partnership with DFO now, we're paying for the study, but we've got the data and the samples from DFO so that we can see, you know, what is the contribution of Strone, which is this new creek um, that is much more productive. It's not a new creek, but it is newly productive for salmon um, versus Hannah Tintina, which are already protected, but are struggling. And so there is a genetic distinction from what we know so far between uh, the lakeshore, between Hannah, Tatina, and Strone. So right there in this one, you know, part of the NAS, in the mid-NAS, you have already genetic diversity. And so from what I understand, and, you know, Mike and and, uh, Mark Cleveland, our head biologists, are going to be better to speak to that, why it's important to have genetic diversity. But really, it's about, you know, not putting all your eggs in one basket. And that's what I hear constantly about the nation from the nations on the Skeena, is that everything is reliant on those enhanced runs. And all the tributaries are just um, the smaller tributaries. And Kiwanga is one of them. And that's in Gitanyao territory, um, are struggling, right? And so it's, it's losing diversity. And it's, it's putting those uh, so much more pressure on on those main runs to be successful and to be everything to everybody basically um and we don't know like that's the point with climate change and climate crisis we don't know what things are going to look like in five to ten years or 20 years and so we have to prepare um, as best we can for all different scenarios in terms of the protected areas indigenous protected areas and uh other nations so we learned from other nations. That's how we got to this point. And uh, we were struggling with the province saying, you know, we need to expand the Hannah Tantina Conservancy. We've got new data. We have an adaptive management approach in our uh, Gitanyahu Lakhip land use plan. So let's do that. Let's follow through on adaptive management. And it was just a stall and delay and deny. Um, and, and we were just not um, confident that we were going to achieve protection of this area. 
uh, with with the crown uh, fully on board. And so we looked around and the Tlaoquit have a tribal park on Vancouver Island and the uh, Chilcotin have Dafiko tribal park in um, the interior and just learned, you know, just reached out to them and talked to them and asked how they did it and how they approached it and what were their challenges and how are they doing an implementation and different and just sharing knowledge and strategies. And so since we've just started to do this work, we've been approached by, you know, I'd say, you know, five to 10 other First Nations in BC who are saying, how are you doing this? Well, you know, how can we learn from you? So it's growing. And I think the more that we share information and the more that we uh, realize that, that the crown is in a place right now where they can't act quickly enough in climate crisis to protect critically um, important and critically endangered uh, species. You know, this is just one tool that we have in our toolbox, but I think it's going to be a really important one. Um, there was just one last thing that I, I wanted to ask about, and I've been kind of fielding this this question to, to many of the guests that we've had on, on the podcast. Um, obviously, you know, there's a lot of positives um, that the Gitnyaw are, are doing that are the Gitnyaw that are seeing on the land, um, as you mentioned, with, you know, this this great run that is uh, is currently taking place right now. Um, and also obviously getting, you know, the protected area in place. Um, but, you know, at on the same note, and it's been mentioned several times um, throughout the podcast, climate change is having a massive impact on on everything um, currently, especially here in the Northwest, we're seeing, you know, glacial melt, we're seeing in some years, uh, droughts and, you know, creeks drying up, we're seeing, you know, on, on bad years anyway, some real terrible returns of, of salmon across the board. So clearly there are a lot of pressures on these fish, on the habitat. And, and I, I always want to Put this question out there because it, I think it's good to just kind of keep it in mind and and to remember what is at stake here. And I guess the question is, you know, granted everything that we've talked about today, and 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 obviously things are looking fairly good right now with um, salmon up into Mesiaden. But could you ever imagine a future without salmon? Uh, no, I that's I think that's the thought of that is sort of what keeps me up at night and what keeps me doing the work that I do. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's more than full time. Um, this is a, a dedication that you kind of take and, and you've probably talked to other people who have taken that similar dedication and, you know, you do whatever you can in your power uh, to, to prevent a loss of salmon, wild salmon in our region. I think there's a lot of people that are working with that objective and I hope to inspire others to take up the same dedication because I see so many people who rely on salmon, but maybe are not as active in protecting its habitat. So if you have the blessing of a full freezer or a full smokehouse or whatever the case is, you need to stand with people who are protecting habitat. Like it's just, it just has to be done. Uh, in terms of climate change and what we can do as well, I think that we all have a responsibility to reduce our own carbon footprint and we also have the responsibility to make sure that new big projects in our region are carbon neutral, right? And so there's been a lot of opposition to recent projects that are, you know, big greenhouse gas emitters. And we have the real life proof on the ground of, of what the risks are if we don't meet our climate targets. 
And, you know, just saying that it's all up to India or China or, or the big, bigger populations is just not good enough anymore. You have to do what you can in your power, whether you're an individual Indigenous person or you're the Prime Minister or whoever, you know, like everybody has the capacity to do something. This past summer, Skeena Wild's Director of Science, Michael Price, continued his work throughout the watershed trying to understand what comes next for declining salmon populations within the Skeena. He works closely with the Wet'suwet'en Fisheries Program, collaborating with them to develop a Maurice Sockeye rebuilding plan as the cold, deep waters of Maurice Lake and that of the glacial-fed Atna River system become more and more likely as a future refuge for salmon and could potentially see increased productivity for those specific populations. Much like the Gitnyao, the Wet'suwet'en too are trying to protect those systems. Back in the Mesiaden Indigenous Protected Area, Strone and Surprise Creek are also showing signs of the potential to increase salmon production in the near future. In the past, these waters have been too cold to produce large volumes of salmon, but that's all changing. The glacial-fed streams are warming up just enough to attract more and more salmon over the last number of years, and although the full potential of these two creeks in Gitniao territory remains to be seen, Price believes that creeks like Strone and Surprise, as well as the Maurice and Atna systems, are glimmers of hope for wild salmon. With the with Kewanga, uh, my mind envisions this deterioration of salmon like there's worry for that habitat uh, you know that salmon habitat it it uh, likely doesn't have a great potential to host salmon in the future as it becomes more and more warm and and there's changes that are occurring there um, but on the flip side yes the Mesiaden I think of it as very similar to the Maurice and Atna system uh, still in um, one major part of it is dominated by glaciers uh, and it's through the leadership of the Gitniao Nation and Gitniao Fisheries Authority that have really started to see a shift in that uh, distribution of, um, of sockeye spawning in the watershed where historically they were predominantly known to spawn in these two systems known as Han and Tintina which have been heavily logged so this is a potential part of the story um, heavily logged, they're um, not dominated by glaciers, so those systems are um, likely warming up considerably, but they're starting to see less and less fish in these streams and more that are going to the far end of the lake into a stream called Strone, as you mentioned, that is dominated by glaciers. It is, uh, it's a cold water system. Uh, in the deep past, it likely did not host salmon, although we're looking into that, at least over the last hundred years. We have data that we can start to crack that nut, like when did fish start to colonize this system? And it's likely, um, you know, the melting of the glacier likely plays a role in the warming of that likely plays a role. But it's also potentially um, due to the land use activities, the forestry activities, the road building activities that have gone on in Han and Tintina that may have caused significant erosion of that stream, enabled uh, like beaver activity to come in, beaver dams creating some barrier to fish. Uh, that may be playing um, a role in this shifting distribution. Access may be cut off for fish. And this is one, it sort of mirrors what we're seeing in the Maurice where the predominant spawning 
river is the Nanaka, which flows into Maurice Lake, what's in Bun. And much logging activity has occurred there in the past, and it continues to occur there. Uh, it's not a protected watershed per se. There's areas, the riparian areas along the stream that are protected, but the, wa the sub-watershed is not. And if logging continues and the erosion of that habitat continues, I wouldn't be surprised if a similar process uh, takes place in that less fish will return to that system to spawn and they may be looking for other available habitats within the, the Maurice and Atna system to spawn. So yet again, it's uh, either you can do something about the Nanaka, which I think we should in terms of halting any further industrial activity in this highly sensitive ecosystem, uh, needing to restore it, uh, but also, uh, and especially if people are not going to make those positive decisions for salmon, then we need to be proactive and start to uh, ensure that there are neighboring habitats are, that are protected and available to salmon for the future. So there's a lot of decisions that we need to make, and I think we need to make those decisions uh, in the best interest of salmon. Um, I guess finally, you know, if you were to kind of picture, you know, these places that possibly do have some, um, you know, decent productivity or potential for the future, um, when you kind of line that up, you know, what what's your hope? What would you like to see in some of these places and where else? You know, where else do you see potential that may not be high on the radar? You mentioned you know, the, the creeks and the, and the counting that was done in the 80s, there's a much broader picture of, you know, some of these places. So where, where else would you identify? I think with, within every large tributary of the Skeena. So if you, um, some of the work through my doctoral research and using the sort of gen genetic resolution that we have at the moment and focusing on sockeye salmon, we can sort of identify an individual population at these large tributary levels. So the Bulkley uh, and all the waters that flow into the Bulkley is seen as one population, right? We have uh, at least 13 of these large tributaries throughout the Skeena and every one of those tributaries, Kispiox being another one, where they go up into the Swan-Stevens system. There are areas within each of these tributaries where salmon are not known to utilize, are not known in the past to have utilized, but have the potential to utilize in the future. So within every one of these tributaries, I think there's potential uh, for uh, as salmon habitat. Um, and likely more particularly, as you work your way into the headwaters of the Skeena, uh, where in the past these are areas that are very cold, right? They have much longer winters. Those nursery lakes stay frozen for longer. They're uh, historically less productive. Those are the systems that will likely be the powerhouses in the future. So I think, yes, if we, uh, you know, were able to be proactive, we would begin to really um, investigate these areas and highlight and prioritize uh, which of these systems are currently unprotected and start to protect those habitats. The fight for the survival of Skeena salmon is at a critical point. 
Enormous challenges need to be overcome if salmon and the communities and livelihoods that rely on them want any hope of continuing as they have for hundreds and thousands of years. This is not an easy task, and although the situation may seem utterly dire at times, there is always hope. Mark Cleveland and Tara Marsden, as well as dozens of others throughout the watershed, know this reality better than most. They have no other choice but to fight for the future of these magnificent salmon and continue their work, not only for today, but for generations to come. We're in a position right now where the run is so low, we're looking at conservation hatchery programs, and we just got confirmed funding to do a, a, a large-scale feasibility study to establish uh, a long-term hatchery program in the Kitwanga. So it's not to produce fish, you know, in the in the tens of thousands to support a commercial fishery. The Gitanyao, they believe in conservation, and we're just really worried that we're to the point where we're losing this important genetic diversity, and we have to do something to help the fish along, and hopefully, you know, the production in the ocean turns around and we can uh, bring these fish back to where they were. I think that our, our health, you know, and, and it is this wonderful source of nutrition uh, and spiritual connection to the land, it's so tied to the health of the land. And so when we see, you know, people losing their health physically or mental health even, the connection to the land is what is going to keep people healthy. And so when I look to my kids uh, and their kids, I want to see that that continues on, that we have healthy communities. Uh, and, and when people feel a responsibility to the land, not just the, like a extractive, you know, relationship with the land, they're going to have a spiritual connection that's going to give them greater well-being. Um, so mental health is a huge issue in our communities right now, drugs and alcohol, and it's all this loss, this disconnection with the territories. So I see a lot of young people um, coming back home, going out on the territories, reconnecting, and I'm just so hopeful. I'm really hopeful about the future in our region. I think that people will realize what amazing place this is and they'll come home, they'll bring their skills, they'll bring their knowledge, they'll raise their families and they'll have a greater responsibility to the area. You've been listening to Upstream, a Skeena Wild podcast. The Skeena Watershed is such a significant and unique environment where Indigenous nations and local communities are pulling out all the stops to ensure our way of life and salmon have a future. If you want to learn more about the people on the ground working every day to ensure a future for Skeena salmon, the people behind the science that are increasing our awareness and understanding of one of the last intact salmon watersheds in the world and what responsible development could look like, then take a listen to season one of Upstream at SkeenaWild.org or subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. I'm Dan Messick. Thanks for listening.